0: What the hell are you both doing here? Nothing. Nothing? Like kids, nothing. Come on and kiss me.
1: Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
0: And I am Cole Rollane. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 158 today. We are back to Erica's Choice. What are we talking about today?
1: Our noir month rolls on with... Diabolique from 1955, directed by Henri Georges Clouseau with Simone Signoret, Vera Clouseau, Paul Maurice, and Charles Vanel. And I actually didn't realize that Charles Vanel was the same guy from Wages of Fear. <laughs> How did I miss that? <laughs> anyway, it is about a wife and mistress collaborating to kill the abusive husband and lover they share. So before we get into the film, I want to talk about our experiences with Henri-Georges Clouseau. Now, I haven't seen the few films that he made after this film, and this ended up actually being my very first Clouzot. all those years ago when I first saw it. Since then, I've seen The Murderer Lives at Number 21, Quai des Ophèves, and The Wages of Fear, which are pretty dang great films. How about you?
0: Well, I discovered Clouzot when I was working at Waterloo Records, In addition to being one of the world's great record stores, at that time, we also had a video annex. It was a separate little store behind the record store proper, and I would sneak over there, and I probably spent as much time on the clock just fooling around in the video store as I did actually working in the record store.
1: And I actually lived down the street from there, and that was my home video store. Right,
0: I was going to mention that. You frequented that store a lot, too, at the time... And it's such a neat thing that we often talk about that we could have crossed each other's path dozens of times and had no idea that we would end up 10 years down the road married and doing this show.
1: By the way, uh, <laughs> but anyway, I interrupted you.
0: Yes, I've seen about a half a dozen of his films by this point. I am not Clouseau complete yet. Wages of Fear was the one that came first for me, and then a little bit after that, and I mean probably two or three days after that, Diabolique. Le Corbeau is probably actually my favorite of all of them, though, even above Wages of Fear, even above Diabolique.
1: That's, I think, the one that I'm most excited to see in my viewing of all of his films.
0: You are going to love it. This pervasive atmosphere of distrust and dread that he creates. It's not just shared between two or three characters or long-haul truckers on the road. It is an entire village that this cloud hangs over. It's brilliant. And then his unfinished version of Inferno that Arrow put out now, I guess, about 10 years ago, too. It's pretty fun to see, too, even though it is not completely finished or assembled. Romy Schneider's in that. She's wonderful. And that Blu-ray has a lot of extras and features that show you where it was going, even though it's not completely finished.
1: Well, do you remember when you first saw this?
0: Yes, the aforementioned Waterloo video, they had a big Criterion wall. I don't know if you remember this or not. I do. Right opposite the counter where you checked out with a huge Criterion display. And so it immediately stopped right there for me. I walked in the building and I didn't get any farther for quite a while. And this was around 2002. So Criterion didn't have nearly as many titles. It wasn't as imposing a task to take on to try to start working your way through the collection like it might be for someone now. And Diabolik and Wages of Fear were very early spine numbers. They were 35 and 36, released back to back, essentially. And so I encountered them both early in my run of starting to go through the collection. I wasn't completely strict in terms of working my way through it in sequential order. So I was picking things that looked the most interesting, still staying among those early spine numbers, figuring I would work my way through all of them eventually. Wages of Fear actually comes out after Diabolique in sequence, but I watched them in reverse order in that case. So yeah, that was the first time I saw it. And now thinking about all that stuff and where we have come and how we could have potentially met, it was kind of funny. This viewing, this particular instance, they mentioned a three-day honeymoon in the film, which was super eerie considering how everything plays out. And we were literally watching it on the eve of taking a long weekend ourselves.
1: But we left our mistress at home. (laughs) It was just the two of us. Well, I don't remember exactly when I saw it, though now that I think about it, it could have been around 2002 as well. I just remember more of the experience because I can tell you it was on a small TV. It was on VHS and I saw it because of a recommendation. And I'm so glad that I did it that way because I think it's fun to once in a while experience movies like this in these odd specific circumstances.
0: It definitely has that late night TV, chiller theater vibe to it that say if France had a syndication package the way that American television had syndication packages of the Universal Monsters and things like that, it would have fit right in on that little black and white television.
1: Definitely, you can think about watching it just on your own in your small apartment, which I had in my own chair, right up close to it. Now, I want to ask you about the title. Okay, so in French, it's Le Diabolique versus the Americanized sort of Diabolique. Does it color your perception of the characters? Do you think Le Diabolique is a fair characterization? Or do you just find the titles interchangeable since French isn't your language?
0: French isn't my language, but I'm not a dope, obviously. (laughs) I know, I know. But no, really, it does change my perception of it. Just the tiniest bit, I think. The plural is definitely the more accurate of the two without tipping the movie's hand too much also, I think. But I do find them essentially interchangeable within my experience in that they don't really alter how I think about the film, how I feel about the film. It's not so noticeable a difference. Like the one more obvious example, probably the difference of the bicycle thief versus the bicycle thieves.
1: That's a great point. I didn't think about that one. And I specifically brought this up because it has always bothered me. Hmm. I'm also going to do kind of a patented Erica Long thing and do a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. From a translation point, Les Diaboliques, or the devils, it makes a lot of sense and it allows the viewer to decide exactly who the devils are, including we as the viewers. And then Diabolique, to me, can make us think about the various plans instead of the characters themselves. I came to it first as Diabolique, so maybe that put me on the side of the women, rather than thinking immediately about them as devils from the start. So are you ready to get into the film? Sure, let's do it. Our setting is a small Paris boarding school for young boys, and our characters are Christine, the frail wife of the horrible and abusive headmaster Michel, and Michel's mistress, Nicole, who has become very solicitous of Christine. So we've got our two women, our two actresses, Vera Clouseau and Simone Signoret, Do you think it's Vera versus Simone? Do you have a preference?
0: I don't initially go into it thinking of it as adversarial that way. I do probably have a bias, though, just because I have a big crush on Vera Clouseau. And in addition to that, I also look at her as a bit of an underdog in a sympathetic story, both in and out of the movies. The characters she played were generally sweet but taken advantage of. And then she died so young at 47. So there is that specter of unfulfilled promise too. But I want to turn this back to you, actually. Our difference of opinion about Vera Clouseau in particular, has it influenced or corrupted how you think of her overall? Or is that just limited to basically a couple of characters that you've seen her play?
1: I think I can separate the character from the performer here. And I also, I wish we had not lost her so soon. I didn't even know she was a writer. I mean, there was just so much that she could have done. Now, for the very same reasons that you like Vera Clouseau, I think that's why I'm predisposed to be a Simone Signore fan. She was so singular. She just kept on going long after it was deemed by other people that she had lost her looks, essentially, making her so much more than this ingenue or fatale that she started out being. And I just can't stand that dithering doormat character. I can't understand the Catholic hypocrisy either. But that's what makes Vera Clouseau so wonderful. She draws us in, or draws me in, in spite of that. I would just love to see more about their relationship what brought them to this point i love the pair that they make now speaking of crushes when i look at this film especially through the costuming and i look at the wages of fear and then completely unrelated film noir from the 50s it strikes me that the 1950s were so incredibly sexy for people who are open to it but made into such a simultaneous bummer by the people who somehow thought we had too much fun in the war and it had to be all tamped down?
0: Okay, I want you to elucidate a little bit for me here who these people are that thought we had such a great time during the war.
1: All these old dudes. (laughs) That's who I think it is.
0: Okay, so based on what you're saying, I assume you mean you're looking at this through kind of an American Eisenhower-era lens And all the cultural repression and blandness that came from that.
1: Very true. Because if you look at someone like Lucille Ball, in the decade before, she is a sex pot. And now suddenly she's buried under all this fabric. And you look at all the men and they look to be 100 years old.
0: So you're saying I shouldn't take fashion cues from William Frawley and have my pants up (laughs) just above my
1: nipples. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, I think we are eventually going to look back at the Eisenhower era as our Victorian England. Period. You've got your bowling leagues and your backyard barbecues on the surface, but underneath you've got Levittown.
1: Totally. I mean, the films that we watch, people were up for it. So why do we have all of these scolds otherwise? It taints the decade for me until I start to dig deeper, because the first time we see Christina, she is a dreamboat. And Nicole on her side, she makes the most of those sexy 50s cuts. And like I mentioned, film noir in general, especially the American side, it is bathed in sex, especially the seamier side of it.
0: Yeah, exactly. You look at something like Kiss Me Deadly, that is overflowing with that kind of candor and straight sex appeal.
1: Well, let's tamp that down for just a second. (laughs) We get to meet some of the students and we see how the teachers interact with them. We see the teachers themselves licking Michelle's boots so they won't be out of a job, and also talking about all the goings-on behind everyone's back. So I was really struck by how the two women are treated by all the surrounding men. There's slut-shaming to me, victim-blaming, and that leads me to possibly the biggest question of this episode. How can a guy who looks like Jack Webb get away with all this action?
0: Okay, I'm going to take this a piece at a time. Going back to the school, it's definitely a patriarchal setup on the surface, but I think that Clouseau undercuts that with these little personality touches. He undermines these male teachers by implying all sorts of things, like they might have a weakness for alcohol. Or like you say, they're just plain ineffectual toadies that will do anything to keep this job. When I think of them, there is no way that these men could have pulled off such a dastardly scheme as these women. They don't have the strength for it.
1: Mmm, good point. Yeah, it's definitely implied that they've got probably nowhere else to go, so they've got to keep these jobs.
0: But yeah, I do love these catty little observations. The chaste woman loves to contemplate Dawn. That's such a nice little dig. (laughs) But I feel like the teachers are trapped just like the children are in this. And you do see Christina stand up for herself in these instances, unlike the male characters do. For instance, these kids are a bunch of rowdies because they're not getting a nutritious meal. She will not stand for the mistreatment of these children, even as she is literally paying the wage of her husband's mistress. So it's a nice demonstration of the purity of her heart, I think. That's a great little character touch that I love. But as far as him being able to pull the birds, as they say... We jokingly made a similar comment during our Patreon episode about The Bigamist, about Edmund O'Brien and how he could manage to romance both Joan Fontaine and Ida Lupino at the same time.
1: With those big ol' hips of his, I don't know.
0: But I think we should take it more seriously in this case, because this time, it's not as benign. It's about when force of will meets either dependence, because Christina, her heart condition is introduced early on, so we know... She's defiant, but she's also delicate. Or he's exploiting a power imbalance, like potentially making Nicole's job depend upon this.
1: I'm with you. There are so many things happening here that I love. I think it's a great use of the story to make this Greek chorus of mean schoolteachers judging the women. And this small bubble that they live in means that they get slotted into this Madonna and the whore. And then they get criticized within those roles. Christina is criticized for being abused. And Christina and Nicole are criticized for even having a relationship. Nicole is treated like a slut while she is doing her job. Now thinking again about how these two women are sometimes pitted against each other, something occurred to me. The first violence that we see against Christina is off screen. The next one is on screen. Do we feel differently about that versus the violence against Nicole? Because we see the effects of that against her right away, the black eye.
0: I don't feel differently about it because the implications of that first off-screen incident are pretty vile and imply sexual violence as well. So having that occur off-screen, leaving that to my imagination, it's already set a baseline of abhorrent and repellent behavior. So when we see further instances of it, to me, a black eye seems a little bit less than the potential rape I've been forced to imagine in my head.
1: I realized I did think differently about it. And I feel pretty badly about that. I don't think Nicole deserves it, but I guess I'm predisposed to think that Christina is more vulnerable Mm. and then somehow that violence, whatever it is, hurts her more. I actually even forgot about Nicole's black eye, and I tended to think that when Michelle slaps Christina first, that that was the first instance of violence until I actually sat down to think about it. Now, because of all of these things and so much more, Christina and Nicole are planning to kill Michelle. Christina is still reluctant to follow through, even with the violence, but her Catholic faith won't allow her to get a divorce instead. Nicole has it all worked out as we will find out. So I want to give a shout out to the script once again, because to me, the doling out of motivations and exposition is perfect. There's just so much mystery that is developed without being oblique. Each bit gives us a chance to understand their characters more as this incredibly long couple of days wears on without having to be explicit. And also, I love the sense of place and geography. It's so well established here.
0: I'm so interested by the different spot, I think, that school occupies in the French versus the American imagination. In France, I imagine it to be a much more uniformly relatable experience because I've seen all these films like Zero for Conduct, The 400 Blows.
1: The Red Balloon.
0: Yeah, it all seems to have a much more cohesive through line than when I think about the various ways that the American school experience, both primary and secondary is exhibited in our films. And then I love that this school setting, it offers so many corners to be surprised by people coming around and opportunities to be watched when you don't know you're being watched. And then in their personal quarters, all these lattices and doorways and everything that feels like she's literally in a prison. You're watching her through bars often And then all of these little episodes that occur on the ground, the moments when her heart is in her throat with the pool episode, for instance, she doesn't exactly have a poker face. It's a good thing kids are dumb (laughs) (laughs) or at least not observant (laughs) to certain adult behaviors. How about you? How did the school setting affect how you viewed the whole thing?
1: I'm with you again. I think we really understand the geography of it, especially the wife and the lover's proximity to each other to the other teachers, how the boys live, all of these elements of this small bubble that I mentioned. And the same for when we go to Nior and how precarious but devilish the alibi and the plot works on the first floor rooms under the nosy teachers on the second floor.
0: Yeah, that points to another thing that I love about this and just international film in general. It's one of those wonderful ways that we learn about other cultures when we can't actually travel there, or if it's a time that's gone by already. Just this idea of everyone carrying a baguette around under their arm is such a fun idea that I didn't think of going to the shop that way when I was young learning these things. And I love this couple. You're right. That are her tenants. They're so French enjoying their quiz show. They seem to be having such a great time and so demonstrative of certain aspects of the culture without being caricatures.
1: Because truly, the baguette under the arm is not a caricature, even though we might think that it is in America. And when you were a small boy going to the shops, probably your grandpa didn't wear a beret and an ascot. But if we were in France, he might have. (laughs) Now, speaking of the costuming, I mentioned it earlier how sexy it is. Now, I want to speak about the colors for a moment, because it was roughly at the midway point where I really started to notice that. When we first see her, Christina is in black and white, which I think speaks to both the division within her character and also the way she sees the world. Nicole, on the other hand, is in grayish colors. She's the one in the middle. She's the one who's not so easy to pin down. But as the film progresses, Nicole is in darker colors. Christina has that exceptional moment with that very dark patterned robe during the murder, But then she goes almost completely white after that. We see her nightgown from then on.
0: Yeah, I think the costuming shift is much more of a giveaway than any pluralization of the title might be. Christina running through the school in that pure white nightgown in the finale. She's chasing a ghost. She's practically become a ghost herself. It reminds me a lot of Gloria Stewart in The Old Dark House with the brightness of her gown against that backdrop. It essentially makes her look like a living candle flame.
1: Well, I have to say I didn't notice it as much the other many times I've seen it, so I'm delighted to find these new things when we rewatch something. So the plot is definitely in motion here, and the alibi they've cooked up to cover up the murder is incredibly intricate. It involves Nicole and Christina going to Nior to this property she owns, where she rents out the second floor to the aforementioned married school teachers. She's trying to obscure the time that Michelle is gone so they can't be implicated. They've got to drug him and drown him in the bath and then transport him back to the school, dump him in the swimming pool, and keep him concealed until the right time. By the way, all I could think of when we see Nicole carrying out the trunk with Michelle's body is that Nicole does the same thing that Monsieur Bridoux, one of the school teachers, does, but backward in heels. Sorry, I've been doing a lot of uh, film theory research lately. <laughs> <laughs> that was my joke.
0: Now you're making me imagine Fred Astaire. Killing someone and putting them in a trunk, basically.
1: Hmm. We're going to write some fan fiction?
0: Ginger Rogers could do it, I feel like. She's saucy enough. You are so right, yes. But Fred Astaire, I don't know that he could pull that off.
1: I think you're right about that, too.
0: You mentioned a couple things also that really interested me this time, the way I saw them, the way I thought about them. You mentioned the trunk. You mentioned the transport vehicle. It's so interesting to go back and watch this a second time because you get to see how all the icons and the objects and the symbols, it's so efficient the way that Clouseau lays these out for you. The vehicle that transports the body is the first thing we see on screen practically. And then these other things appear, the trunk, people get to see it before it becomes involved in establishing their alibi. Essentially what you get is everything appears as its innocent version first, including characters, And then we get to see it later as the corrupted version as well.
1: I have a favorite visual moment with this. There is an image when Christina is heading toward this crooked cross of light that the doorway makes once she has finally fully agreed to do the murder.
0: Yeah, she certainly goes on a journey with all this stuff. Their scheme is hinted at at first, and she says she can't go through with it, but we have What I think is one of the most interesting tensions in the whole thing. That old difference between what a character says and what they do. We're led to believe that her heart, literally her heart, cannot stand the strain of this plot. But then when he hits her, when she is hesitating about administering that sedative, it's so clever and the way it plays across her face and the things we don't know about him at that point too. The play within a play to push her over the line into murder... And from that point on, she only becomes more righteously indignant. She's not scared of their fate anymore. It's what they deserve, she feels like. That old Catholic guilt coming back again. And this time, her words and her actions actually align. She threatens to call the police. She dials the phone. Nicole is the one that has to stop her. Who knows if she would have gone farther. I think she actually would have. I think her word, thought, and deed are becoming one at this point. But the thing we don't know the first time around is that They have to stop her from doing this so that their plan holds up. Another of the more interesting aspects of all of this sexual politics that you were bringing up earlier. Why would you trust your husband's mistress in a scheme like this? It seems to be the most twisted case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And I have to admit, when I saw this early on, I thought, oh, the French in their ways, they're so mature with their handling of this. This is very continental. How did it strike you when you saw it?
1: Well, I think that I'm really missing the lack of the lesbian relationship mm. that is more outlined in the novel that this came from. I think that motivation works really well in something like of 5 his other film. Maybe we have to wait until Jalo came around to get an angle like that.
0: I will say, like you mentioned it coming up in the other film, I don't feel like that it was something that he felt was too controversial to tackle. I felt in this specific instance, it was more to do with streamlining the story, focusing on the suspense rather than bringing in other romantic angles.
1: Ah, interesting.
0: But if you're reading between the lines, you can still see things like that. For instance, you see how often Nicole manipulates Christina. One is very definitely the alpha in that relationship. And in retrospect, it's such a beautiful and clever series of manipulations too. At every step, it seems like Nicole does something to make Christina participate, to make her complicit in this so that she's not innocent. She can't talk her way out of it. She can't think her way out of it. She makes her burn his return train trip ticket, for instance. She makes her participate in covering him with the tablecloth, drawing the bath. And covering him with that tablecloth, I think, is a really nice touch that allows for the double subterfuge to happen. I love these little details along the way. But then it even goes farther. Enlisting the innocence help, the school teacher, to move the body. I love these tropes. The dripping faucet that equals suspense. I had a Disney spooky sound effects record when I was really little. It had a dripping water torture track on it. So... That device has been burned into my brain since I was about six years old.
1: I think that's a great point, too, to mention that in streamlining the plot, possibly, it still allows for the performances to suggest something beyond this power dynamic, what's behind it, without being so overt about it. Now, the plot is about to thicken even more because apparently Michelle won't stay dead. One of the young boys at school claims to have seen him and the pool is drained and the body isn't there anymore. A different body, or possibly his body, turns up in the morgue and Christina goes to identify him as the women get the sense that Michelle is somewhere in Paris still walking around and Christina is fully unraveling at this point. So when we go to the morgue, this crusty old guy is waiting there and catches up with her. And he is fiché, a cop. What do you think his backstory is? Why was he in the morgue at this time?
0: I think he's there because of a detective's instincts. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. You go where the information is. Sometimes you hang around at the tonsorial parlor. Sometimes you hang around at the cafe. Sometimes you hang around at the morgue. These are where things happen. I have to say, I love this character so much. He's so fair-minded. He is not set on any one particular outcome. He is a true detective in the sense that you go where the evidence takes you. You don't make the evidence go where you want it to. And yeah, she's unraveling. When he approaches her with his badge that first time and she is backing up and her eyes are widening, she has zero chill, let's just say. And I love how his investigation, it gives more opportunities for these background characters to demonstrate how much knowledge they have, how observant they are, even if they aren't doing it overtly all the time. This great line that it was more in his nature to complicate his life
1: (laughs) is such a great idea. Everybody's always paying attention. You can't get away with stuff.
0: Right. You're living on top of each other in that school, essentially. And then Christina eventually spills everything to the detective. She makes this huge, what she thinks is a confession, but it doesn't add up to what he knows. And he tells her, tomorrow morning, you'll wake up acquitted. If I had or hadn't done something, this is the guy I would want on the case. It would be like that Johnny Cash episode of Columbo, where if I was guilty, I would feel like, well, I'm just glad it's you bringing me in. And then if I was innocent, I would know he would prove that for me.
1: I love that you mentioned Columbo because I was just about to, because I think there are a lot of similarities, not the least of which is how rumpled Mm -hmm. he is. (laughs) Now, when I first saw him, I was thinking noir the whole way because he almost seems kind of slimy. I was thinking, is this guy an ambulance chaser, but the cop variety?
0: Interesting, because to me, he had a much more grandfatherly, patiently working towards the result kind of vibe.
1: I was thinking this guy doesn't have a good reason to be here. Maybe he's a more glurker. Or maybe he was watching Michelle the whole time. I want to know what this crazy backstory is because I think there is one. Now he continues to investigate as you mentioned and in the movie's last big act of suspense, Michelle has possibly returned to the school to get his revenge. Christina truly dies of fright with a heart attack and the big twist is The lovers, Nicole and Michelle, plan this whole thing, including his fake murder, in order to kill Christina and get her money.
0: But not so fast, he says. 15 to 20 years, you bozos.
1: Yeah, exactly. Aha! Fichet has figured all of this out. He interrupts them before they can get away with it.
0: Now, you say she dies of fright, and it makes me go back to how she thinks about this whole process from the very beginning, this idea of if you kill, you have to die, whether her body and her mind gives up her soul in that instance. Because at one point, she very definitely says there's only one possible end. We are monsters. She's convinced of her guilt. She knows it in her heart. And she's taught those kids the classics all the way back to Aristotle. There are these rules that govern this sort of thing. So to me, how it reads is they haven't necessarily killed her as much as she thinks she's killed, so she has to be punished equivalently. But there's a wrinkle, too. Monet, the child who had his slingshot confiscated, he says that she's come back and she gave it back to him. So... Do you believe Monet? Do you think she's dead? Is there something supernatural happening here? Is this a double, triple cross?
1: Now I was definitely on the fence with the very first viewing in terms of what was going on as a whole. But I think I had a sense of the time period. And so I weighed that against the possibility of a more maybe supernatural element to it. Because I don't think she's alive. I think their plan worked, at least in the execution stage. Get it? (laughs) How did you see this?
0: Sadly, I don't think she's alive either, but I love the supernatural angle of the whole thing. There are so many fun instances that suggest that as an option. The principal told me to do this, Monet says. It gives you a chill. And then when they're taking that group photo and you can't quite tell if that's him in the window up above the assembled students and teachers, I love that touch.
1: It's almost a hint of the innocence sometimes.
0: Exactly. So you're wondering, legitimately, is he alive and well? Is he haunting them in either one of those forms? Is he just biding his time to take his revenge? Those supernatural things, it really diverts your attention in a fun way, I think. So once all is said and done here, does this satisfy? What were you hoping for from the ending?
1: Uh, I was hoping the two women would triumph and never get caught. That's what I was hoping.
0: I think I got exactly what I wanted out of it. Actually, the guilty are punished. It would have been nice if she came back from the grave as a vengeful spirit, maybe at the end or even alive to celebrate this victory overall, because it truly was her that was being exploited and her alone. But all things being equal and keeping it on this earthly plane. Yes, I do feel very satisfied with how the story played out.
1: I think I'm on to something with this whole let's wait for Jalo and see what the next chapter brings.
0: So, I have another question for you now that we're talking about this. Going back to what we said at the beginning of the show, this is part of our annual noir celebration. What pushes this over the line into noir territory instead of just being a suspense thriller?
1: A faux show. This is a noir. It's also a thriller, but it's noir first. I mean, okay. Bear with me while I go through my PowerPoint presentation of why this isn't noir. It's got great noir lines, like, my only regret is that he won't know I killed him. (laughs) (laughs) To me, there's more finality in it than suspense, even in the amazing third act cat and mouse part. We see the dead body and how unsettling that is. It's noir because you have to wonder how they would ever get away with it. And that's that nihilistic noir sensibility I like. Plus, we've got Fichet on the trail, which is pure noir, especially because he's scruffy and not this, you know, gleaming white hat person.
0: Even if all that weren't true, there is one thing that happens that pushes this into noir territory for me. Do tell. That is that it's so often the case in noir where it's a tragedy truly tragic and the fact that she does not survive and is not left alive to reap the benefit of them having been caught and punished that is what pushes it over the line into noir territory for me if christina lives somehow i might be on the fence about it
1: good point now having said all of that let's not negate the thriller aspect to that because it's wonderful i mean if nothing else Clouseau and Hitchcock were contemporaries, and they influenced each other. Hitchcock tried to get the rights to this story, but Clouseau beat him to it, and Hitchcock said he was directly influenced by this film for Psycho, which is kind of an odd parallel for me. Let me tell you a brief anecdote. I think I mentioned it in our Psycho episode, because the first viewing of Diabolique, I had the same feeling when I saw Psycho. There is a specific moment in both of those when we're looking into murky water and the television I was watching this on made that an incredibly unsettling experience.
0: Just in that the quality of the image was slightly degraded and so it made it feel like a dirtier, scarier...
1: That and just somehow the light hitting it in the way that I was looking at it in the dark on my little TV made this feel like I was diving into Mm. the water somehow. It's something I've never been able to recreate in quite the same way, but it will always stick with me.
0: I'm glad you bring up Psycho because this actually has another parallel aside from the looking into the water aspect of it. A very critical point in this is that he tricks you, the director, be it Hitchcock or Clouseau, into siding with a perpetrator early on. Without your knowledge. And then when that reveal comes, it comes much later in Diabolique than it does in Psycho. But yeah, I've been tricked into being on this person's side this whole time. And then we find out the terrible truth. I'm guessing you probably knew Hitchcock before you knew Clouseau. Is that right? Yes. So one of the shorthand things we often hear for people, for budding cinephiles, for instance, who are trying to get into foreign film, maybe you hear that, Clouseau is the French Hitchcock. There's a part of that that's clearly true. Obviously, the way they influenced each other, they're making similar material, even buying for the same material in some cases. But I do want to clarify that that's not all there is to Clouseau, which you definitely see more as his career goes along. He doesn't have nearly the voluminous filmography that Hitchcock does. But I definitely think in those later films, at least the last two or three, including Inferno especially, you see that his ambitions were a little bit wider, or at least more varied than Hitchcock's might have been. So I want to make sure that we don't pigeonhole him as just that or reduce his career to being the French Hitchcock. There's more to it than that.
1: Totally agree with you.
0: Now, I think we addressed this a few times as we went, but is there anything in particular that highlights the rewatchability factor of this for you?
1: Maybe it's like I mentioned discovering for the first time after however many times I've seen this the whole color story or call it maybe that tradition of quality as the Cahiers du Cinema referred to it as even though for them Hitchcock was fine doing the same thing but whatever somehow I also manage to forget exactly how the ending unfolds so it's kind of like I'm watching it for the first time each time and the timing of the murder begs
0: for a rewatch. I think you felt the same as I did. I think we actually said this at the time. I am already excited before we hit the play button on this one this time. So many great things that we get right away. That DAC ray, essentially, over the opening credits, that brackish swimming pool underneath. Then the kids start eerily singing. And then that overwhelming organ comes in and just plows everything else under. This opening credit sequence is amazing. And then there are so many beautiful, eerie shots in it that don't necessarily stick in my mind, so they're pleasantly surprising when I see them again. When he's been drugged and he's laying on the bed trying to fight it, saying, I don't want to sleep, that's such a beautiful, eerie shot. And then, above all, obviously, it's definitely rewatchable, because when you go back the second time, you get to see how ingenious the setup is, the scheme within the scheme, and brilliant little bits of performance, like Simone Signore, when she is walking through this with Vera Clouseau, this idea of trying to figure out what makes sense with his reappearance. Is he alive? Is he not? When that suit comes back from the dry cleaners, how frightening that is. You get to this Sherlock Holmes point, basically, of when you rule out everything that's impossible, what's left, however improbable is the answer. And then that whole cat and mouse sequence at the end when Michelle finally reappears, the typewriter and finally the bathtub. It's classic haunted house material to the point of being utterly ghoulish when he rises up out of that water.
1: I have to think, well, I know this is true. William Castle said how influenced he was by Clouseau's career. I have to think the tingler Mm, was derived from that.
0: And then the one thing that's not there that I wish was there going back in retrospect, when we rewatch this, how much fun would it be to have a version of this is how they did it. Like you see in heist films, how that unfolds. Like we just watched Logan Lucky not too long ago and you have that flashback and you see, these are all the little things that were put in place that made this work. I would love to see a flashback sequence from his perspective, having to spend all night in that bathtub being jostled around in that trunk, how he managed to conceal all these movements while he was moving about Paris, putting all of these other pieces in play. I think that would be a super fun bonus feature.
1: It does sound pretty fun to me. I like to think that we got that in Celine and Julie Go Boating. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we go, I want to ask sort of one more time or come back to it Clouseau and Signore and their very different careers. Now, We've talked about this before, but does it feel especially creepy to you to watch this and realize that Vera Clouseau died just three years after this from a heart attack?
0: It definitely adds a layer of pathos to her performance, that's for sure. I have to do some research, so I'm not sure if this is the case, whether Clouseau was aware of her condition and that was written into the script, perhaps as something that she could particularly perform and relate to. I'm not 100% sure whether that's true or not. Me either. But it's terribly sad, especially when you contrast her with Simone Signore. Signore worked from the 40s all the way up until the 80s, and Clouseau only had these three credits in her husband's films in the mid-50s. I'm glad Signore had a long and storied career, but I think if I had to just boil it down to three apiece, Vera Clouseau's are super strong. And if I had to do away with everything else, I would be totally happy and satisfied with just this room at the top and Army of Shadows for Simone Signore.
1: Well, you know that I'm a big fan of The Deadly Affair Mm -hmm. that she's in. And I like to think that these are kind of connected because she has a story in Diabolique that she's telling Christina about wearing these woolly socks to keep warm. And then the first time we see her in The Deadly Affair... She's in her sort of full matron suit but wearing her woolly socks.
0: So this is her post-prison after she served her 15 to 20 years and moved on to start a new Maybe.
1: life. Maybe. I like to think that was specifically her costume choice.
0: The senior universe basically. Exactly.
1: I I love her. I came to her late period first and she just never fails to surprise and delight. And we were set up to expect something specific from her in that early career, and then she just left that all behind and fully embraced who she was. So, then, what's your recommendation?
0: Well, in keeping with our noirish theme and also keeping up the Hitchcock connection, I want to recommend Obsession from 1976. That's directed by Brian De Palma and written by Paul Schrader, who wasn't exactly pleased with how his screenplay was truncated. Shocking. And it's a suspense melodrama with some neo-noir touches starring Cliff Robertson, Jean-Vierre and John Lithgow. It also has music from Bernard Herrmann, too, so the Hitchcock connections are all over the place. I don't want to be too spoilery, so I will just say it is about a businessman who becomes obsessed with a young woman who resembles his deceased wife. Shades of Vertigo, much? Definitely that. But I also think it's probably De Palma's most underrated of his major films. And it varies just enough from those obvious inspirations to become its own thing. And I should say that it succeeds on that count, largely because of Jean-Vierre performance. She is amazing in this. So compelling to watch. Worth the price of admission all by herself. And Herman also thought it was his best music of his career.
1: Wow, fantastic. And what about you? Well, I can't wait to watch that one. And first off though, I might also actually watch the Diabolique remake with Sharon Stone and Isabella Johnny. Because at least on paper, that sounds like good casting.
0: Are you squeezing in extra recommendations here?
1: Yep. <laughs> Done. But I chose Death Trap from ah. nineteen eighty two, directed by Sidney Lumet from a screenplay by Ira Levin, based on his own play, and Jay Presson Allen names that you would know from that period. And it stars Michael Caine, Diane Cannon, and Christopher Reeve. It's about two lovers who plan to kill one spouse in order to get the money. And it also involves the spouse's weak heart. Now, I first saw this a million years ago because of my mom. And it's very great fun. It's got great twists, and it's got a play within a play. It's not world-shaking cinema, but Sidney Lumet knows what he is doing, and Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve are great together.
0: I might disagree on the world-shattering part because there are elements of it that, at least when I saw it, I was very young. I can tell you exactly where I was sitting, in the floor, in front of my grandma's television, watching it on the movie channel back when that was a thing. There are parts of this that were things I had never seen before. Good point. Good point. So yeah, I love this one too. I don't know how well it ages because I haven't watched it in a long time.
1: I have and I still like it.
0: Great. Yeah, I loved it though at the time and then the few ensuing viewings I had soon after that. Yeah, this is a favorite too.
1: Well, once again, that's two great recommendations, Obsession and Death Trap.
0: And that brings us to the end of episode 158. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes. So you never have to go a week without new magic lantern in your life. We would also like to say a special thanks to our friend Andy Wolverton for inviting us to program an installment of his great movies discussion series. We picked We Are the Best for That Purpose, which is a coming-of-age story from Lucas Moodison about three young girls finding out who they are and who they want to be via punk rock in Sweden in the early 80s. If you haven't seen it, we highly recommend it. And we truly appreciate Andy for inviting us to be a part of that great ongoing series that he hosts.
1: Thanks to Andy and Darnice,
0: his yes. co-host. Yes, is fantastic as well. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Cinema Renoir Film School, The Fine Gentleman at FUDS on Film, Laura Cannon, Mike Scharf, Spencer Seams, and Derek Smith. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us there. A special thanks to the nice anonymous person who left us a new five-star rating on iTunes. We appreciate that very much. If you would like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly be grateful for that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com.
1: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.